Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Well, we are uh, in the middle of a series uh, called Why Church? Uh, that's uh, because Pastor and I and I are both preaching. I don't know if you can remember that far back, but that was five weeks ago we started that, and then four weeks ago we did number two, and this is number three. And the idea of the series is uh, in this particularly challenging moment in the life of the church uh, in North America and, and, and our church and Carlton Place and Ottawa and all, all, all around the area, uh, there's, there's a question, I think, in a lot of people's hearts is, what is the relevance of the church? Uh, why would I even get up and go on a Sunday morning? Why would I be engaged? Why would I take time to do this thing? And my hope is that we'll all have conversations with our friends about that and invite them into this journey. Uh, that, and that in this moment when things are kind of in flux, when things are in transition, when we're emerging from COVID and uh, joining our two churches together maybe and trying to find out how this stuff all works, that we'll be able to really just take a moment and reset our DNA on what the church is and, and come to a, a new understanding about it. Uh, the key uh, text that, that sort of is going to be threaded through the whole series is Paul's teaching on the church uh, from the book of Ephesians. Um, and one of the things that we noted on that first week was uh, that God is sort of setting up uh, the work and the life of the church. Uh, he wants to make something plain. He wants to uh, reveal to the world something that's been his plan for a long time since the creation of the world. We don't have those images. Okay, on the screen. All right. Um, are you able to? Yeah. Yeah, you take over. You got it, buddy. Thanks. Um, oh, I know what's going on, actually. I can, I can fix it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, God is making plain to, to everyone uh, the administration of this mystery. We unpacked that text, yeah, exegeted it weeks ago. Um, and the idea is that now through the church... Uh, his wisdom, his glory, his beauty is going to be revealed. That you have a purpose, and we have a central purpose uh, for the life of the church, that, that we exist not just for ourselves, not just for our comfort, but there's something about what we do when we gather, what we do when we have small groups, what we do when we do outreach projects, that is not just for ourselves, but is to bring the glory of God. Uh, and reveal it to the whole earth. And what we're doing over the course of the series is just kind of breaking that down uh, into three uh, kind of areas of, of orientation that we want to see shifted. Uh, one in our ministry to God, and this is just the way theologians kind of break up the purpose of the church. We have a ministry to God, we have a ministry to one another, and we have a ministry to the world. And, and today we're taking a second crack at talking about our ministry uh, to God. Uh, you'll remember that that first one, we were looking at the idea that there is something about the reason for our gathering that is just us glorifying God directly. When we worship him, when we praise him, when we do the songs like we did this morning, uh, even if we got nothing out of it, even if we didn't learn anything, even if we didn't feel anything, even if we didn't uh, receive anything at all in it, one of our purposes is simply to just reflect back to God who he is. And if there was nothing else in it, that would be enough. Because he's holy and mighty and glorious and powerful and beautiful and he's worthy of our worship. Amen. Right? Amen. 
This week, we're going to talk about uh, how we learn, how we grow, and, and what comes back to us as we do that, not for ourselves, but for him. So we're going to just uh, tackle that second part of it. Um, and as you know, like the context we're in, uh, things are kind of not looking great for the church, right? The church in North America, things are just not looking good. The church is in rough shape. You'll remember uh, that attendance is dramatically down uh, across uh, the board. Uh, people are coming less frequently to church where you once maybe felt like you were a regular attender. If you came every week or every second week, people feel like they're regular attenders. If they come once every month or once every six uh, weeks, uh, churches are closing. Uh, there are not enough pastors and leadership pipelines to pastor the churches that there are. Uh, culture's perspective on the church is increasingly bleak. We have a, a negative uh, image of us. Uh, evangelical Christians are, how many of you know that's not a popularity club anymore? Right? Maybe it never was, but uh, we're, we're not particularly popular in culture. Um, and the values of the surrounding culture are drifting farther and farther from Jesus, right? The values have drifted. We are more different than we were before. And surveys of Christian leaders simply say that there's just, in this moment, never been a more difficult time to lead. This is a really hard time uh, to lead a church. And so for people who are sitting on the fence, who are saying, uh, I don't know, am I going to get up and go to church uh, this Sunday morning? Uh, I could watch Netflix. I could just watch something online. Uh, oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to drag the kids out. Uh, for people that are in that state, there's less in terms of what we understand culturally that draws them. There's less that they want to come and, and participate in. There's just a divide. There's a gap there. Churches are struggling. Uh, we're trying to do programming well. We're trying to organize things well. We're trying to do our services well. All of that. But... Um, it's harder to simply get people to come and be a part of the, the body of Christ, right? You, you know that, and you've felt it yourselves, haven't you? Like, it's sort of a little harder to drag yourselves out now than it was pre-COVID, right? It just, it just is for many of us. You encouraged yet? <laughs> I want to take us to uh, Tehran, to Iran. Here we are with all of our problems, uh, trying to make churches happen and make churches grow. And, and bring the body of Christ together. But I want to take us to the fastest growing church in the world. It may point us to a solution. Because the church in Iran doesn't have a building like we have. Doesn't have property. Uh, the people of Iran have uh, not got the right to gather. They don't have the right to... Um, get charitable donations, <laughs> receipts. Um, pastors and leaders have been imprisoned. You cannot own a Bible. You cannot gather in public. Uh, proselytization, telling your story, the story of Jesus to somebody else is actually illegal and can have you in prison. And so under those circumstances, the church in Iran is absolutely exploding and absolutely thriving. So there's a question for us. No programs, no lights, no sound systems. Meetings occur in houses and apartments. Worship is carried out in the dark. Uh, people are whispering songs and whispering readings to each other in case the neighbors hear, in case the neighbors report them. What do they know that we don't know? 
What do they have that we don't have? They're not just coming to church once every six weeks, not just once every four weeks, not just occasionally online. They're not just coming to church every week. Many, many of the churches in Iran are, are home groups meeting in people's homes and they're attending every single day to worship and every single day to celebrate communion. And we can barely get ourselves out of bed. What do they know that we don't know? Their why for attending church is different from ours. Their why, their why church, their reason for gathering is different from ours. There's something different. They've discovered in their world of desperate need that there is only one thing they need. There is only one thing they need, and that's Jesus. And they need to know him, and they need to know him more, and they need to become like him. They need to be discipled. And that's what they're gathering for. They're gathering to worship Jesus and to learn about him. Uh, there's a, an interview um, with a pastor, and it's on YouTube. And if you go digging around, you can find a little bit of an extended transcript of it. But this is a, a pastor uh, from Iran, and this is, this is what he says in the, in the extended transcript. He says, what persecution did for us was destroy the church that wasn't about discipleship. It destroyed the church that was about converts. What the church found out was that converts run away from persecution. Disciples would die for the Lord in persecution. All of our songs and our gatherings and worship are not gathering just to have fellowship for converts, which is good, but they are really for discipleship. Our worshiping teaches and disciplines us to be more like Jesus. As we worship, we teach each other how to know Jesus and how to obey Jesus' word. That's what worship is. That's what he meant when he said, the ones who love me will obey my teaching. When we worship him, when we love him, we are doing something that teaches us to obey him. And the church in Iran is desperate for it. And we are not. And so we hear across the ocean the voice of the people of Iran calling us and speaking to us and warning us and saying, hey, you better pay attention. You better pay attention. You need Jesus just as we do. And so you see that. You see that uh, need, that passion, that desire to learn, that desire to gather, that desire to be discipled. And you see it in Iran, and of course we see it in the New Testament. Uh, this is an excerpt from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, or sorry, to the Colossians, church in Colossae. Uh, Colossians 3, chapter 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. <clears throat> and be thankful. So one, coming together to worship, coming to gather, coming to be in one body is to let Christ rule. 
There's something about discipleship, something about our worship that is not about us, not about us uh, getting uh, warm feelings. It's not about us uh, as much feeling uh, comfort, and comfort is good. That, that part of worship, that part of experiencing the presence of the Lord is really good. But what's really happening as Paul is teaching the church in Colossae is that it is about coming and entering under Christ's rule and there finding peace under Christ's rule. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. So you're coming under his rule to worship, are coming into this worship context of singing the songs that we're singing, singing the songs about the glory of God, singing the songs about the truths of the scripture, are bringing ourselves under the rule of God, and then teaching us to go forward and do everything in the name of God. And in the center of that uh, is verse 16, which is that really the how it works. And when we think of worship, and I think there's a beautiful thing about us, a beautiful thing about charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches and vineyard churches, is that we really say that worship is not just singing songs about God, it's about singing songs to God. We have an expectation of the presence of God, we have an expectation of intimacy, we have an expectation that we're going to know him better, that we're going to experience him, and that's amazing. But here's what Paul is saying and adding to that in terms of the reason for our dwelling with God, the reason for our fellowship with God. Let the word of Christ, the scriptures, dwell in your richly, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing as we worship, as we glorify him, as we lift our eyes to him, as we praise him, as we go vertical, as we go completely vertical in our worship, that worship teaches and admonishes us. That worship transforms us. That singing, the hymns, the psalms, the spiritual songs, transforms us. That word teaching there in the Greek is, is the standard word for teaching. It's didaska, which means literally to cause someone to learn, to instruct, to impart knowledge, to disseminate information. Those songs that we sing uh, that are full of rich theology are meant to get that information into us. And I'll show you some examples of that in the, in the New Testament uh, in a moment. But those songs are meant to get that knowledge into us. And then the word admonish means, uh, is, is a Greek word that is nutheteo, uh, which means to move the mind. It means to move your mind. These songs sung together in worship are meant to take your mind from one place and move it to another. To transform you. Uh, to exert a positive pressure on your mind and move it to another place. That's what these theological songs that we sing are meant to do. They're meant to transform us. They're meant to make us different. They're meant to make us new. And so when we talk about this moment in the church, this moment of us understanding why we're here, one of the reasons why we're here is to be transformed. Uh, our worship has to shift from being egocentric to being gospel-centric. Our worship has to shift from being about us to being about him. It has to become about him and about who he is. 
And so are we worshiping and learning obedience? Are we worshiping with teachability? Are we worshiping like sponges who are absorbing these things we're singing to God and allowing them to move our minds and to shift us and give us the information uh, that we need? And back to the people in Iran, they're looking at us across the ocean and saying, your worship, sometimes we don't even know what it means. We don't even know what you're talking about a lot of the time. And there's a game that we've played in youth group before. It's called Hillsong or Love Song. How many of you know this little game? You know what Hillsong is? Hillsong's a, a music uh, uh, producer out of Australia. They produce all these uh, amazing worship songs. We sing some of them. They're absolutely beautiful. Many of you have the albums. They've been around for a long time. A few of you probably have some dusty CDs probably uh, somewhere. Um, and so we're going to just play a little bit of, game, of a game and look at their songs for a second. And I'm going to get put some lyrics up on the screen, and I'm going to get you guys to answer the question for me. Is that a Hillsong worship song, or is it a love song? Hillsong or love song? You guys ready? Okay, here we go. Here is the first lyric. I was lost in a moment till you caught my eye. Now just raise your hand if you think that's a worship song, that's a Hillsong. I was lost in a moment till you caught my eye. Okay. Now raise your hand if you think that that is a love song, just a secular love song. Okay? That is a Hillsong song called Glimmer in the Dust. That is a worship song. Okay? Here's another one. It's so cold out here in your wilderness, I want you to be my keeper. It's so cold out here in your wilderness, I want you to be my keeper. Hillsong or love song? Raise your hand if it's Hillsong. Raise your hand if it's a love song. Okay, we're sort of roughly evenly split, but we're mostly wrong. It is a love song, Water Under the Bridge by Adele. Okay, right, here we go. But I wonder where were you when I was at my worst down on my knees? I wonder where were you when I was at my worst down on my knees? Raise your hand if that's a hill song. Raise your hand if that's a love song. It is a love song. Make Me by Britney Spears. Okay. Love laid its breath against my chest. My skin was thick, but you breathed down my walls. Hillsong or love song? Raise your hand if that is Hillsong. Raise your hand if that's a love song. That is a hill song when I lost my heart to you. Okay, so the church in Iran is looking at us. Is anybody else concerned that we can't tell the difference between a Jesus song and Britney Spears? <laughs> is anybody worried about that? Right? There's a, there's a little problem there. Right? So there's something that the Lord is calling us to as we go intimate with him, as we go deep with him. We need to be singing things that teach us and transform us and make us new. Our songs are great. We love the intimacy. It's really important. That's something that the Lord did in the church through the 80s and 90s through that sort of worship rock band revolution was it taught us to not just sing theology but to sing theology to God with, with hearts of intimacy. But they're not just meant to soothe us. They're not just meant to make us go to sleep. <laughs> These songs are meant to shape us and send us and inform us and grow us.
There's got to be a shift in our purpose here. One of the earliest hymns, this is actually the earliest fragment of a hymn that we have um, from, uh, you know, early church kind of documents, uh, a papyrus. And the lyrics of this one are, let it be silent, let the luminous stars not shine, let the winds be still and all the noisy rivers die down. And as we hymn the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, theology and hymns, let all powers add amen, amen. Praise always and give glory to God. Do you hear this song admonishing you? The soul giver of all good things. Amen. And the top five Christian contempo songs of 70 AD are in the scriptures. These are parts of the scripture that we read and we see them as prose in the scriptures, we see them as paragraphs that are written out. Look at John 1, 118. We just read it like this rich, deep theological piece. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to take a look at that text in Christmas. But when you look at the Greek and you look at the structure, what scholars say is that that is written in with a formality of style and with a pattern of word usage that tells us that that was never written to be a piece of prose just to be exegeted, just to be looked at, just to be studied, although that is so important for us to study the word like that. That was also a song that was written to be sung, to transform the hearts. Now, look at we often have this image of early Christians, and we think that they were sort of, you know, you know, peasant farmers or people living in the cities, and some of them were educated and some were not. So I imagine when they did worship, it was kind of pretty, pretty dumbed down for them, like what we do. And I sometimes I'm thinking about choosing songs as a worship leader. Sometimes I'm saying, yeah, you know what, that one's pretty wordy. We better not do that one. Uh, let's do one that's got a little more repetition to it that we can get into it. John 1, 1 to 18. That is some theologically dense and theologically rich stuff. And the early Christians sang it and worshiped Jesus by it. Intellectually stimulating, intellectually challenging, challenging our heart, challenging our, our, our way of being, uh, a theology that was going to transform us. The Apostle Paul, John, they didn't dumb down anything. They just had right at it. Because they knew that their songs uh, were meant to disciple. Let's just take a second and look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, 5 to 11 for a second. And some of your Bibles, some of your translations will have this written like prose like it. Some of your Bibles will have it written so that it's in verses, so that it's in uh, something that looks a little bit more like song or poetry. But when we look at this text... In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and on to verse 11. I'm just going to take that first little bit. Uh, we look at that text and we say, there's something there for us to learn. Like, I'm supposed to learn to be a person who 
uh, when I am having relationships with others, I should be like Jesus. Uh, if somebody feels like they're over me, if somebody feels like they're above me, somebody feels like uh, they're, I'm not equal with them, I'm wrestling with my position relative to them, we're arguing, we're fighting, uh, maybe uh, I, I should somehow claw my way up in that relationship and, and bring myself up so that I can feel like I'm equal with that person. And Paul probably was taking this text and, and his writing, he was looking at the church in uh, Philippi. We don't know where he wrote this from, either it was from in prison in Ephesus or maybe it was in prison in Rome. And he looked at the church in Philippi and said, hey, they've got disunity there. They've got problems there. They're, they're fighting among one another. They're wrestling one, among one another. They don't know how to relate uh, to one another, so I better write them a letter. I think they had a trucker rally in their town, and then there's this hearing that's going on now, maybe in Philippi, and we need to, and people are just kind of disagreeing with each other and fighting about this thing all over again, and, uh, and I probably need to teach them how to be at peace with one another. So he writes them this letter and says, you know what, they're fighting. I don't know if they need therapy. I think they need theology. <laughs> they don't need uh, they, they need to know who Jesus is. They need to know who Jesus is. They need to know that Jesus, who in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Something to be grasped. That word grasp in the Greek is like to plunder a prize. You don't need to plunder equality for yourself. You don't need to grasp for that. You don't need to fight for that. But be in very nature. Be like Jesus who made himself nothing. And so we see that and we sort of take that text and exegete it and we learn something from it. But the early Christians didn't just see it as prose written on a page. For them, it was a song. And when you uh, look at it, you see some beautiful structure in it. Um, if you look at that verse, verse 6, who being in very, very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, uh, you see this beautiful phrase there, verse 6, and I've just trimmed a little bit on each end of it, morphe theo hyparchon harpargamon hegasato to theo. You see that beautiful alliteration between those three words. And you know that it's written poetically. You know that it's written musically. And so now you're imagining Paul saying, okay, I'm in Rome. Uh, I've got to get this letter to the people in Philippi. They've had stuff go down. They're wrestling with disunity among them. Uh, we need to sort this out. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm not going to give them therapy. I'm going to give them theology, but I'm going to give it to them in a song. So that when they sing that song, it will transform them. They'll remember it, and it'll make them new. And we have this beautiful, beautiful uh, piece. How many of you wish you could hear the, the tune that Paul probably sang it from his prison cell and tried to teach it to his scribe? So you've got to remember this. How, how would you like to be that scribe? Okay, Paul, you're teaching me this song, and you want me to sing it, you know, hundreds of miles later, when I get to Philippi, you want me to still remember it? You want me to remember the tune? How am I going to do this? And, and there's going to be all kinds of people there in the synagogue. There's going to be all kinds of people in these homes, and I've got to sing this thing? That was what was embedded in the culture, what they understood, is that, that these things were meant to be sung. It was meant to be worship that became uh, something that was transformative and changed their hearts. And so we're going to sing a 
simplified version of that when you stand up with me for just a second. And that'll give your attention spans when you stand up, and I'll just lead you through that. It'll give your attention spans a little bit of a break, and let me uh, just uh, finish the sermon. So why don't you repeat this part after me? And this is actually somebody, something that uh, an artist named Michael Card did in the 80s. I'm just using his tune for his adaptation of this. Who being in very nature God. Easy, right? <laughs> Who being in very nature God. Great. Would not grasp equality with him. Let's sing that again. Would not grasp equality with him but made himself nothing, but made himself nothing, and took up a servant's nature, and took up a servant's nature. Let's sing it again. Who being in very nature God, would not grasp equality with him, but made himself nothing, and took up a servant's nature. Sing it one more time. Who being in very nature God, would not grasp equality with him, but made himself nothing, and took up a servant's nature. Well done. Give yourselves a hand. You may be seated. So you're gathered with the church in Iran. You're gathered with the church in Philippi. And Paul has written you a letter, and he said, why don't you guys sing this and let this really get in your hearts? And you can imagine, even for you guys who just sung this little ditty like three times, I think it'll be easier for you as you go forward into your week and approach relationships where there seems like there's an imbalance and say, yeah, I can enter into this challenging moment, this moment of pain, and I can take up the place of a servant. Because Jesus was a servant. Worshiping Jesus transforms us. It teaches us. It admonishes us. It shapes our character to be like him. James K. Smith said it like this. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship. Because it is in gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. The subtitle of that book is The Power of Spiritual Habit. How could we be transformed? How could we be discipled if we are fierce 
about our habit of worship. If we're fierce about our habit of gathering, if we're fierce about our habit and consistency of gathering to be discipled, to sing songs to glorify God and to be transformed by them. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. We come to worship God. We come to experience his glory in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as we experience his glory, as we enter into worship, as we celebrate who he was, the words that we are celebrating transform us and make us more like him. If you need to be someone a little different from who you are, to thrive in the world, if you need to be somebody who can reach your friends, if you need to be somebody who can uh, live and act and behave in a new way. It starts with worshiping the one who's our model. As we worship him, it becomes possible for us to imitate him. And then beyond that, not only are the words and teachings meant to disciple us, but isn't the flow of our gatherings important? Remember how we came in this morning? We came in uh, with a little bit of confession. Just a few simple phrases, but we came in and said, hey, we're all people with messes of lives. We're coming here under the truth of Jesus and who he is and and what he did for us. We do this every week in, in very simple ways. We're coming in under the truth. And then we sing the truth. We worship. Uh, we, we praise him. We glorify him. And isn't that an acting out of the Jesus story? Jesus walking with his disciples, them observing him, them seeing him, them having conversation with him, and being transformed by him on the road. That's what worship is to us. And when we preach the gospel, we come to the cross. Uh, we come for instruction. We come before our king, and he, he teaches us his law. He teaches us his rule. He teaches us how to live, and, and we're transformed. That's why we do the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the word. And then later, as we do the benediction, that's our resurrection, our resurrection from uh, our place of brokenness, the place where the word of God has transformed us, and now filled with new life, we go forward, and we are commissioned and re-sent back out into the world to do the things he's called us to do. We live out the story of Jesus' life every Sunday when we gather. And habitually going through that, uh, that re-walking through the story of God helps us to know it better and helps it, us to live it better and helps us to be that. We rehabituate our lives. And back to the church in Iran. It's from a book, uh, Jesus in Iran, just with a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of counsel for us again to come back to that place. Only gospel-shaped gathering can make you a Jesus-shaped people. If you want to be like Jesus, our gatherings just have to become more and more shaped like the gospel, more and more shaped like him, more and more centered on him, more Christocentric, less egocentric, less us-centric, less Hillsong, more Jesus-song. And then we have to come faithfully and consistently and obediently. So in this moment where people are asking, why would I come to church? Why is church relevant? And the worship team can come up. It's relevant to him because it's worthy. And two, it's, it, it's relevant to us because it remakes us. It shapes us. It, it makes us new.
we're going to sing as a last song. And here, here's the lyrics. Be lifted higher than all you've overcome. Your name is louder than any other song. There is no power that can come against your love. We're singing about the power of God. You took our sin. We're telling the story. You bore our shame. You rose to life. You defeated the grave. A love like this the world has never known because you took our sin. You bore our shame. You rose to life. You defeated the grave. We're singing again the gospel over and over again. And as we sing the gospel, we want to let it transform us so we would be gospel people in the world, so we'd be Jesus people in the world. We sing it for him, and we sing it to be transformed and made more like him. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca. Thank you.